1 Samuel chapter 31, and we will read the entirety of the passage. Follow along with me if you would, please. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is The Tragedy of Striving and Waiting for the King. So yes, I have returned to really long titles. These are the two things I hope you'll see as we look at this chapter together this morning. Because Saul's life is a picture of these two phrases. In that Saul lived striving towards something other than what God had called him to. And that though Saul was king, those who were watching the kingship of Saul were waiting for a better king waiting for someone else. Now, in the darkness of this story, we can see the hope that we sing about at Christmas time, even here. And this halfway point through Samuel's story that we'll pick up on, Lord willing, next year, looking at the continuation of David's story and his ascension to the throne, the hope of all of that is on the horizon. But we ought not forget that in this moment here, this is a dark and sad day. This is a bleak midwinter moment for Israel. And its bleakness is highlighted perhaps most tragically through Saul's final action of ending his own life. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed once for man to die and then face judgment. And that word appointed is important because we do not make our own appointments with death. It is the Lord who does that. 
the God who gives life, doesn't authorize us to throw away our own lives just whenever we have decided. The message of Scripture is that there is hope in the King that we are to wait for. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ is available to those who would struggle with thoughts of suicide. And that there is actually hope in that simple fact that God does not allow one to take one's own life. That God does not give his, give his stamp of approval on that kind of action. So if God does not promote suicide as an end for the striving of this life, his purpose must be for us to put aside striving and to wait on his appointed king. To put our hope in another besides ourselves. And this is what Saul needed. In that moment when he decided, well, the Philistines are going to kill me, but before that they're going to torture me, they're going to parade me around, they're going to humiliate me. So I know what I'll do. I'll take matters into my own hands one last time. This is the tragedy of Saul's striving. And it's the tragedy indeed of any who would go to such lengths. It's a sorrowful thing for one to take what God has given, no matter how dark a place that person might find themselves, and say, this is where I've decreed the end to be. How did Saul get to this point? I mean, that's kind of what 1 Samuel has shown us throughout our studies. And, and boy, did I have to cut out three or four sermons that I tried to pack in here to f- trace all the lines to see how Saul got to where he is in this chapter. But perhaps it would be helpful to us to look at 1 Samuel 14, verses 47, 48, and then 52. I'll read those if you'll just listen. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. But there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. As we close this book of 1 Samuel this morning, we can see that this story has shown us how God's way of leading is the only way that can lead to life and that can lead to peace and that can lead to an end of striving. See, all the days of Saul, there was hard fighting against the Philistines. Yes, he overtook Moab and the Ammonites and the Edom. He had the Edomites. He had victories here and there, but the Philistines were a constant threat during Saul's life and during his reign. The choices that we make in striving against the will of God, Saul shows us, ultimately lead to tragedy. Because in his striving to do what God appointed him to do, God appointed him to defeat the Philistines, to save Israel from the Philistines. But do you remember how he was always doing things his own way? Remember chapter 15 particularly, when Samuel said, hey, at this point, God is going to bring vengeance on the Amalekites. He wants you to wipe them all out. Did he do that? Well, in his own estimation, he did. He did wipe out nearly all of the Amalekites. But his disobedience disqualified him from the help of God. And that was what's so fascinating. God didn't in that moment take the crown off of Saul. But he said, as you've been trying to do this on your own, I'm going to let you do this on your own now. First Samuel has been a book about the tragedy of human striving in this way from the beginning. 
As we heard from um, Bishop J.C. Ryle in the beginning of our study, the best of men are still men at their best. The best we can do is still only going to be within the bounds of humanity. So let's look at this chapter under three headings. And there's an outline in your bulletin, and we'll also have it up here on the PowerPoint as well. In verses 1 through 6, let's consider Saul striving to the end. In verse 7, we'll see a lost king being followed. And then in the remaining verses, we'll see the gospel of the king. Saul's death is a picture of the tragic end of striving to get one's own way against the Lord's way. So God's people must wait for a true king. So let's open up to verses 1 through 6 first here. Is it going to work? Maybe it was working earlier. Brian, can you move the slide for me? Thank you. Striving to the end as we see Saul's life. So this word striving, I've said it a bunch of times already, but in thinking about this chapter, there's not an instructive moment. There's no comments about the rightness or wrongness of Saul's action in the end or of Saul's deeds. But, but what we have in this chapter is a very brief, just 13 verses that close off Saul's story permanently and closes off his family line as well. We see the mentioning of our beloved Jonathan, his oldest son, the the dear friend of David, who we'll see David weep over, especially in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But we see this in the end of Saul's life, that up to the very last moments, his very last breaths, he was still holding on. If you remember that picture of him holding tightly to his spear that we saw so many times, that spear he used to try to kill David, the spear... uh, with which he sat under the tamarisk tree, which is ironically where he'll end up in the end of this. It's not the same tamarisk tree, but, but it's pointed out there to memorialize Saul in, in, a, in a strange way. But in this idea of striving, I, I thought about Ecclesiastes 2.11, where Solomon, David's son, who would reign after him, wrote, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Striving after the wind. I thought this was an excellent picture to wrap up Saul's life. Striving after the wind. Striving in his own strength for his own ends, but still yet under the banner of Israel's king, of the one whom God anointed and appointed to rule over. Saul's life was spent this way. And in his final battle, Saul was crippled by the fear of humiliation. And so that striving turned its direction even more inwardly, really. It had always been inwardly, always striving to his own end, to the end. And the tragedy continues in knowing that as he acts out in this fear of humiliation, he's also not leading to victory. From what we saw in chapter 28, if you remember, he knew what was going to happen. Samuel, whom he had conjured with the help of um, a witch in Endor, in verse 19, Samuel reminded Saul that the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul was reminded by Samuel that his disobedience had made him an adversary of God, made him God's enemy. And his future was set by this divine mandate that Saul 
had to die. And it wasn't that God had said, the way I'd like you to die is by falling on your sword and, and doing this, this kind of act. It wasn't that. that, was, that this is again, even in the Lord saying, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. The Philistines are going to end your life. Even in that truth that he heard from Samuel, he still ends up having his own hand in this. It's really sad because, again, to his last breath, he was living in rebellion and disobedience to God. An interesting thing happens in this section where we see the repetition of the word fall. We see it used three times in this short chapter. And this is what striving after the wind brings. Striving after the wind or, or working in the futility of one's own strength to one's own plans is going to bring to a terrible fall any who would go after it. Anyone who would look for their own way against the Lord's way. So first it was the men of Israel who fell, if you look at the beginning of our chapter. As the Philistines came and were fighting against Israel, the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now this is obviously what God said was going to happen. The Philistines were going to defeat Israel. So the first fall is the fall of the army, the army that stood between Saul and the Philistines. This is quite an opposite situation than what we saw last week, if you remember. In chapter 30, David had an overwhelming victory against the remaining Amalekites who had stormed his camp and stolen the wives and children away from all of David's men. And they were able to not only recover their families and recover the goods that were lost, but they were actually able to profit off of the further destruction of the Amalekites that, again, Saul was supposed to enact. So we move from chapter 30 and seeing this great victory and this great revival moment of David to back to Saul where he's just as bad as ever and in some ways worse. Without David, Israel had no hope against the Philistines because the Lord was with David. Now, if you remember back again, I'm going to try really hard not to just cover the entire book because there's so many threads that bring us to this. But there's one really fascinating one. The first battle in 1 Samuel involves the Philistines taking away the ark of the presence of God. We talked about how the ark was a symbol of God's power and his promise and his presence. And yet the ark isn't really mentioned after that story too much. We'll see it later on in 2 Samuel, of course. But whereas the beginning of 1 Samuel starts with the ark being taken away, now we end 1 Samuel and having David, in one sense, being sent away, and David almost being a parallel in some ways to the ark. Because again, the ark is a reminder of God's presence, his power, and his promise. And now all those things are with David. The Lord is with David. He's his refuge. The Lord is giving David success. He is the power by which David is victorious. And of course, David is now walking again in the promise that the Lord has made him that he would make him king. So there's a tragic contrast in here as well. Because there is striving in one sense on David's side, but it's not striving against the wind. It's striving alongside with the power that, as Paul says, uh, God works mightily through him. But the opposite thing is happening in, in the end, in chapter 31. We have the fall of Israel's men, then we see the fall of Saul. The writer tells us that the battle pressed hard against Saul. 
And if Saul himself could see the tips of the Philistine spears and was dodging arrows, it's clear that the battle was lost. Again, another contrast. If we were to take Saul out and put David into this battle, what have we seen David do already? What was the first thing he did when he came on the scene? He killed a giant as a, as a kid with, with a sling and a stone. I mean, he said things like, who is this Philistine dog? Who does he think he is to come against the armies of the living God? The fact is, is that if David were in this situation, he would have no reason to fear. He would have every confidence. Though the entire army of the Philistines were to come against him, he would be victorious. Why? Well, because he's David, right? Because he's the one after God's own heart. No, because he's the one whom God chose. Because he's the one with whom God has rested his power, his presence, and his promise. Tragically, it is not David facing the Philistines right now. It is still Saul. And as the battle presses hard against him, as he is dodging the arrows and ultimately struck by one of them, he sees the hopelessness and the futility of all of his striving after the wind. His men would have fought tooth and nail to defend their king. But at this point, there was none but Saul's armor bearer left. This is another moment where we should think about David again. Because David, of course, was Saul's armor bearer. We see these words, and, and again, this would be a great TV show, because at this moment, you should have you know, the camera panning across the battlefield with all the arrows flying everywhere, and Saul looking over to his armor bearer, and then flashing this memory of his old armor bearer of David there at his side, giving him confidence, reminding him of the Lord's power and presence and promise. But no, it's... This other unnamed armor bearer. The armor bearer shows some great loyalty to Saul here, even though he acts in disobedience to him, right? Because Saul turns to the armor bearer to find some kind of rescue. In his striving to the end, he's still barking out commands and orders that are self-centered. He asks the armor bearer to run him through with his sword so that the Philistines wouldn't capture and humiliate and torture him. The armor bearer won't do it. It's unacceptable. Again, what would it have been like if his old armor bearer was there? Saul wouldn't have had to look to, this, uh, to David and say, would you run me through with your sword so that I could be saved from the cruelty of the Philistines? No, he would have the opposite kind of look in the eyes of David as opposed to where he is now, completely hopeless. David would have made this battle go the opposite direction. They would have pressed hard against Achish and the other Philistine lords. David would have fought to the end to protect Saul, and he would have been successful. I spent a lot of time this past week thinking about alternate story ending here. You know, how, how should chapter 31 have wrapped up? I think it should have wrapped up with that kind of idea. David there fighting alongside Saul, an overwhelming victory against the Philistines, then ending with Saul taking the crown off of his head and putting it on David's. That would not be striving against the wind. It'd be striving against your flesh, right? It would be striving against him and his old desires, but it would be striving along with the power of God. You see, I think that part of why Saul is left on the throne is to show God's great patience, to show that there, so long as we draw breath, we have an opportunity to the end to repent, to realign ourselves with God's way. But Saul's striving was there because he had rejected God's way. 
He should have been supporting David and paving the way, but instead he sends him away with death threat after death threat. See, striving for our own way, our own plan, will lead to destruction. And that is, that is true for each one of us. If our striving and our efforts and our own power are, are where we find ourselves seeking our own plan, seeking our own way, seeking our own sin, we'll be lost in it permanently, as Saul found himself. See, Church, Saul has been a mirror for us to peer into and examine our own selves. This is what God's word does at large. And it's something that we want to do every Sunday that we open up God's word together is to see, okay, here's a part of God's story that's going to show me the hope of his promise, but it's also going to show me what's in the way between me and that hope. And I think in this passage, we can see that our striving for our own goals can very much be in the way of what God is seeking to do. So what are you striving for this morning? Is there a possibility that you too might fall due to your striving? Let's look at verse 7, a lost king followed. Matthew Henry, in his commentary over this book, says, As Saul lived, so he died, proud and jealous, and a terror to himself, and all about him. I don't think there's a better way to put the ending of Saul's life. A terror to himself. He had become a terror to himself. He turned his own sword on himself in the end. And that terror spread. Let's see how it spread. Even though he was a terror, Saul was followed to his death. Verse 2 shows us the sad truth of Jonathan and his two brothers' death before Saul's eyes. Saul's armor bearer wouldn't kill him to save him from humiliation. But when he saw Saul end his own life, he too followed suit. Verse 7 then tells us that the fall of Saul, his armor bearer, his sons, and his men had a near immediate effect on the men on the other side of the Jordan River. Without a king, they went back to thinking the way they did in the, time, the period of the judges. Do you remember the constant refrain of that book? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And what did everyone do? It was right in their own eyes. They fled. That was right to them. Our king is dead. What should we do? They abandoned their cities, and then the author tells us that the Philistines would then come and live in them. They followed this lost king. They followed this fallen leader. And in that, they found nothing. They found a striving after wind. See, the, the tragedy of Saul continues beyond his own life. It continues on to those who, who would follow him, who would say, yes, that's my king, that's the one I'm following. Or even those who would say, I mean, he's not the one I voted for, and I know he's not the one that God wants, but he's still the king, and I have to obey him, striving against the wind. And they followed him in that way. So there's a following of it. There's his continuous striving. And then in verses 8 through 13, we see almost the same word of gospel that we use every Sunday used by the Philistines. So let's look at that. Chapter 31 happened on the same day as chapter 30, remember? And we've already talked about how David and his men were victorious in chapter 30. That if you could kind of split screen these chapters and look at both of them at the same time, you would see victory and rejoicing and good news for God's people. You would see defeat and sorrow and good news for God's enemies. 
There's bad news for Israel in chapter 31. But for the enemies of Saul, it's gospel. It's good news. Look at verses 8 and 9. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Remember, Saul's whole motivation in his last evil deed to him, his own self, taking his own life, was with the goal of avoiding humiliation, avoiding torture, which he did avoid the torture, but he couldn't avoid the humiliation. Even that last deed wouldn't put a bookend of saying, hey, Saul did it his way and he had his way. He didn't have his own way. The Philistines had their own ways. And it says that as they, after they had cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines, interestingly in the Hebrew, um, it doesn't say literally messengers. It just says that they sent. They may have been sending those things that they took from Saul throughout the land of the Philistines. So that in that they were carrying the good news. Another tragic reversal of how we would like to see good news in our own lives or in the lives of the people of God as we read them in Scripture. Saul was a constant irritant to the Philistines, though. And now they would celebrate his death by giving them the same thing that David gave to Goliath. By parading his armor all the way to their God's temple. You might even imagine that perhaps they made a holiday out of it. You know, death of Saul day or whatever they might have called it. The king they hated had died. This was good news worth celebrating in the Philistines' minds. But it was the opposite for Israel. Not primarily because the king they had hoped would win lost, but because of what it revealed of the state of the nation of God's people. It revealed that as went the king, so went the people, striving after the wind. There's a positive note in verse 11. It takes a strange turn. We might have expected verse 10 to be the ending. They just say, this is what happened to Saul. But then we have this note of the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead, hearing what the Philistines had done to Saul, going all through the night, recovering the remains of Saul and his sons, and then burning the bodies. They would have done this in order to protect whatever was left of the dignity of Saul and his sons, and to put a stop to this, this uh, parading and desecration that the Philistines were acting out. But what does this note actually tell us? Because, again, there's nothing instructive in chapter 31. This is why my week was very difficult with this chapter. What is it that we're supposed to do? Well, okay, we see the striving. We see Saul striving to the end. We see people following him in that striving. And then we, we see the celebration of the Philistines and, and this, this slight note of somewhat good news for Saul and his line that though it has ended, it is now no longer going to be paraded. He's no longer going to be paraded around and disrespected. But the chapter ends with the burial of Saul, with the, that very last act. So they, the Philistines had found his remains. The men of Jebesh had taken those remains back and given him some dignity, and then buried him under the tamarisk tree. Again, the same kind of tree that we've seen him sit under before, where he would handle his decisions, he would, he would answer his advisors, and make, make all of his choices, and all those things that were striving against the wind. But this chapter leaves us needing something else. It leaves us waiting for a king. 
See, the, the last section here where the men of Jabesh recover Saul in the midst of the Philistines' joy and good news is a reminder of God's desire to save his people. It's a reminder of, of Saul's good parts of his life. How is that? Well, if you remember, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead who came to recover Saul's remains were those who would have been saved earlier on by Saul. Saul's first act as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he went out and saved the, the men of Jabesh from um, an enemy that was coming to attack them and take all their stuff, basically. And in that, they remember that there was good that God brought through, even Saul's life, even despite Saul. there's still a need for the human heart to loosen the grip on their own way and their own plan. Because Saul is a tragic story for Saul, for Israel at that time, but he is still a picture for us to recognize our own striving and our own efforts towards our own plan. Even at Christmas time, we can do that, can't we? We might say things to ourselves like, this Christmas, I really want this to happen. I really want things to go very well. Or I need this kind of joy because I've suffered quite a bit this past year from work or family or health issues or financial crises. I need some relief, some comfort and joy, right? We long for that when Christmas time comes. And then I think we come to this last week, and if you're like me, you're frantically putting together the last pieces of your plans and getting presents wrapped and kicking yourself for going to Meyer on the Friday before Christmas and, and striving after the wind in one sense. I know that's a much smaller picture, but what is the reality that we walk in sometimes when we lose sight of the real God-given purpose of things? Instead of striving, instead of embracing the tragedy of our striving for our own plans, might we wait for God's true and appointed king. So this is what Israel has to do. I mean, for us, look at this. I mean, we're we're the end, half page of chapter 31. We just need to go to 2 Samuel 1 to see, all right, this is going to end up okay. David's going to come. He's going to be there. He's on the horizon. But in between, in this empty space, and I don't know if your Bible has empty space right here, but in this empty space, there's these questions. There's these, what have we striven for? What has been our purpose? What is... What is it that we're waiting for? What is it that we're hoping for? It's for another king. Just as Israel had to wait for King David in the shadow of the wickedness of Saul, so again a wicked ruler would reign the night that the true and better David was born. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, we're reminded, or we're told the story, that though Joseph and Mary had to flee Bethlehem, because of the threat of King Herod going out and killing all the young male babies that night Jesus was born. In verse 19, it says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in, the, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took, his, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. It's kind of like a side note sometimes for us as we read the Christmas story. But I found an interesting parallel in this because Saul's death, as tragic and as 
as consequential as it was in that empty space between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's leaving empty space for God to say, David, it's time. Let's go. We're going back. And so it was, even in the beginning of Jesus Christ's life, that he had to flee from the, a wicked king who didn't belong there. You know, Herod wasn't even a Jew. He really had no claim to the throne. He was appointed by the Roman Empire. He was in a lot of ways like Saul in that. He's not God's chosen king, but God's chosen king had to flee, had to go out of the country. And at Christmas time, we were reminded that Jesus, who came to us and had to flee for a short time, came back. That the waiting pays off. And that contrast between Saul and Jesus is so essential for us in understanding God's unfolding plan in this chapter. Because in Saul's death, he was so preoccupied with avoiding suffering. He would have fled away if he could, but he was grounded. He was struck by an arrow. He didn't entrust his life to the Lord's keeping because he wouldn't accept the Lord's direction. He was unfaithful, just as we've been in our own striving. Yet at Christmas time, the Son of God, the true and better David, came to embrace suffering and in it to give us life. He who was above all thrones and dominions, he who is called the radiance of the glory of God, the one through whom all things were made and all things hold together, who perfectly and magnificently obeyed the Father's will in everything that he was asked, he endured the wrath of God against our sinful striving so we could have life by grace, the opposite of our striving. Ephesians 1 says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And he lavished this grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And that is an incredible benefit where we sit today right now. We don't sit in the in-between 1st and 2nd Samuel. We sit in the revelation of what God has done in Christ. The mystery is revealed according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In that fullness of time, there is a waiting that precedes it. And in that waiting, in that blank page, there is a need for us to decide, am I going to spend my waiting days before the return of Christ or before I'm taken home in striving after my own plans or in waiting for the king? And boy, is there a, a part two to this. When you go to the New Testament and you go to a place like Second Peter and you see, well, what kind of people are we supposed to be in these waitings? There's a great reason for us to examine God's word and say, what is it that I am meant to do while waiting Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6, should suffice for closing off this morning. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. How Saul could have used that psalm in his last moments. Instead, he fell to the tragedy of humanity and striving after the wind. Humanity spent striving day by day, but we must not strive against the Lord as Saul did. It's all too easy for us to switch back to striving in our own strength, even if our hearts would want to wait for the king. 
We need to work by the power he gives us through the gospel. Just as David had the power of God, the promise of God, and the presence of God, so have we because of Christ's substitution on the cross. Because he is now ascended, and he does reign today. He is the king who is seated on the, at the right hand of the Father. And in him, we will not be shaken. So church, let us embrace our need to be a church that waits for the king. Let us be those whose lives are marked by our decisions, by our actions, by all aspects of our lives, continually and increasingly being yielded to God's lead rather than our own.